Believe in yourself, cause it starts with you And then everyone else will believe you too And if it looks like you're the only believer around Just keep on believing, don't put yourself down Just believe Our guest this week grew up in Los Angeles Earned a BS in Engineering Sciences from the Air Force Academy And a Master of Science degree in Mechanical Engineering from Columbia from 1987 to 1998, he was an astronaut and flew three missions totaling 30 days. From 2006 to 7, he was commander of Air Force Space Command. And from 2008 to 2011, he was commander of the United States Strategic Command. He achieved the highest rank, four-star general, of any astronaut ever. His name, General Kevin Chilton. And I'm Jack Crisula, and this is Anything is Possible on 760 WGR. I'm Jack Crisula, this is Anything is Possible, and we're talking to General Kevin Chilton. He achieved the highest rank four-star general of any military astronaut in our history. General, welcome, an honor to have you. Thank you, Jack, it's great to join you this morning. Can we start by talking about your childhood and your mom and your dad, please? Absolutely. Um, I grew up in Los Angeles, California, and uh, we moved into the home that my parents lived in for the rest of their lives when I was two years old back in 1956. And my mother and father uh, were, are my heroes, even though they've passed on now. Uh, mom, uh, both of them grew up in very poor conditions. Mom from a broken home and my father born in Canada. Uh, at age 10, they moved into moved to Helena, Montana, and uh, it, it was tough in those days, you know, kind of Depression-era kids. But uh, for my father, uh, who served in World War II, the GI Bill turned out to be just a gift from heaven, and uh, he and his brothers, as a result of their service, were able to be the first ones in their family to go to college. And Dad ended up at the University of Southern California studying aeronautical engineering, and hired on with Douglas Aircraft. And his first job was as a flight test engineer out at what is now called Edwards Air Force Base out in the high deserts of California. My mom had aviation in the blood too. So uh, after being a welder in an aircraft manufacturing facility in Utah during the war, she went to college for a year and then uh, and studied nursing. And it turned out in those days, you had to have one year of nursing degree to be a flight, uh, well, we call them flight attendants now. In those days, they were stewardesses. And she applied, and for four years in the 1940s, she flew for American Airlines as a stewardess. And so they, that was my the aviation background, but I'll tell you what, I was so blessed to have Jim and Shirley children as my mom and dad. They, they were just wonderful parents, so engaged in our lives in athletic sports and school growing up. Uh, it was just a wonderful childhood. We're talking to General Kevin Chilton. He served 34 years within the U.S. Air Force. General, let's go back 53 years. July 20th, 1969, Apollo 11. Neil Armstrong yes. steps on the moon. What do you remember about that day? Well, I remember watching it on live television, and I was lying on the bed of uh, my aunt and uncle's house in Palos Verdes, California, uh, watching a black and white TV, I think the whole family was gathering around, uh, watching Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin land and Neil take the first steps on the moon. It, it was uh, it was magical for me in many ways because I remember my parents waking my sister and I up 
when we were very young uh, and very early in the morning since we were on the West Coast to watch on a small black and white television Alan Shepard's flight and Gus Grissom's flight and and also John Glenn's flight. Uh, after that, they decided uh, we paid our penance and we didn't need to get up so early anymore. But you know, to go from seeing the very first launch on television then to see Man Walk on the Moon in such a short period of time was just incredible. Talk to us, if you will, about the enormity of that achievement with the technology that we had at that time. Oh, it, it was unbelievable. I mean, computers were just being invented to be able to do the things they did. Uh, in fact, I was just listening to an interview of Charlie Duke, who walked on the moon with John Young uh, on Apollo 16, and he was describing how incredibly limited the computer systems were, both on the Apollo capsule and then on the lunar module. Uh, to, to show you, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I know when we flew the space shuttle, uh, we were flying with uh, random access memory on our main computers at uh, 256K. Now, you, you wouldn't buy a watch with that little memory. And that was 1970s technology. So go back 10 years earlier. What they, what they did that with uh, computer-wise and all the other te- new technologies they had to invent, the, the size of the engines on the Saturn V, all of that uh, just boggles my mind. All right, from 1972 to 76, you attended the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, God's country, um, at the base of the Rockies. Talk about those four years at the Air Force Academy. Well, I'm not proud to say, Jack, that I did not go to the Academy for very noble reasons, but I, but I had a reason, and I always counsel young people that want to go to the Air Force Academy or any service academy and said, you have to go for your own reason, not somebody else's. And my reason was <clears throat> I wanted to become an airline pilot. I mentioned my mother was a stewardess. I mentioned I was laying on the bed of my aunt and uncle's house. Uh, my uncle was an airline pilot, and my aunt was my mom, one of my mom's best friends from being a stewardess. And so I, I wanted to be an airline pilot, and I couldn't figure out how to get flying lessons living near Los Angeles International Airport. And then just really one day by Providence, going to the beach with a friend whose older brother was home from from college, I've, I found out he went to the Air Force Academy, which I knew nothing about. And he told me all about it. He said, if you went there, <clears throat> they teach you how to fly jets. And after you served your time in the Air Force, you could be an airline pilot. So that's why I went there. So not for very honorable reasons, but <clears throat> uh, I was fortunate enough to get in. Tremendous education there. Um, met lifelong friends there. And, uh, and I had that opportunity. To, to learn how to fly. So it, it really started me out on a career that I had no idea I was going to end up doing. It also has a famous cathedral, a spiral cathedral at the base of the Rockies. What's it like to talk to God within that cathedral? Well, <clears throat> I, I try to spend every Sunday in there at uh, Catholic Mass. And, you know, the, we used to joke with our Protestant buddies, they had the upstairs, which upstairs part of the church, which is really gorgeous and we had the downstairs part <clears throat> we were in the basement and the grotto i guess you'd call it and they would they would say oh, yeah you guys are second class citizens in the basement and we'd say yeah but that's as close as you're getting to heaven upstairs in this building and we would poke fun at each other but it was just such a gorgeous place to um to well besides send service just to be there even when service wasn't in session to at either mass or upstairs or in the in the jewish chapel downstairs as well to just sit there in a quiet place and uh, be close to God. 
we're talking to General Kevin Shilton. And I'm Jack Rasula, and this is Anything is Possible on 760-WGR. This is Anything is Possible. I'm your host, Jack Rasula. We're with General Kevin Chilton, who was one of 15 people who became an astronaut in the class of 87. And he served from 88 to 98 through three missions, totaling 30 days. General, how was it you decided to become an astronaut? Well, uh, it was kind of an evolution, Jack. It wasn't something I... I wanted to do when I was a boy. I mentioned earlier I wanted to be an airline pilot. I, it never crossed my mind, even though I had the exposure to the Apollo program growing up in the 60s, that that would be anything I would uh, be able to do or even be interested in doing. Um, I just thought flying airplanes would be a lot more fun. So when I, I was at the Air Force Academy, um, fortunately, um, you know, I studied engineering. Uh, between my junior and senior year, I had a chance to spend six weeks uh, on a summer program out at Edwards Air Force Base in California. And I met and flew with in the backseat of these gentlemen called test pilots, which I didn't know much about. And uh, they seemed like they really liked what they were doing. So I said, well, you know, I'll, I'll put off applying to the airlines if and see if I can, uh, after a few years, apply to be a test pilot and do that for a while. And uh, again, I was very fortunate after uh, three operational tours, uh, in the two, one in the F-4 and two in the F-15. Um, I applied and was accepted to test pilot school. It was a double blessing because it, that was not only the, the key qualification one needed to apply to be an astronaut as a pilot, but one of my classmates was a lady named Kathy Dreyer, who was a flight test engineer like my father was, and she's now my wife. So uh, going to Edwards was a double blessing for me. Anyway, I, I, I went off to be a test pilot, and again, I wasn't really interested in becoming an astronaut, although the shuttle program was in full swing, and I had a good friend and mentor who had gone off to be an astronaut in 1985, and we had flown together. And I, I was talking to him on the phone, and I asked him if he thought I would enjoy the job, because I really didn't know much about it. He said, no, I think you'd love it. So that's what led me to apply in uh, when they had applications out in 1986, and again, uh, much to my surprise, I was fortunate enough to be selected. We're talking to General Kevin Chilton. He's a four-star general. You mentioned Kathy. You're married. You have four children. She became or is an Air Force major in the Chilton household. Does a major trump a four-star general? <laughs> Actually, Jack, she's a major general. Oh, I'm <laughs> sorry, Kathy. I'm sorry. <laughs> so. she, she retired as a two-star. Now, Kathy was active duty when we met, but when I went to NASA to work, uh, there was no jobs for her career field there. So after um, seven years of active duty, she separated from the active Air Force. We got married. She moved to Houston, and she joined the Air Force Reserves. And so she continued to serve and actually served longer than me. She served a total of 37 years, active and reserve in the Air Force, uh, uh, made two-star general, and raised all four of our children, and took care of me, which, you know, I'm pretty high maintenance. So she, she's, a, she's a wonder woman. And, uh, and we used to joke all the time, you know, and, and went in public, you know, she always had to uh, 
give me the due regard as the senior officer, particularly when we were in uniform. But at home, she made it very clear, regardless of my rank, she had one more star than me. <laughs> yes, dear. Yes, dear. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, you're part of the 12th group of astronauts. What's it like? What does a launch feel like, Kevin? Oh, gosh, it's really hard to describe, Jack. I'd say it's the best analogy that I have is, is when you're a, if you ever have a chance as a youngster, uh, which I did at Pacific Ocean Park, if you remember, they had a marvelous roller coaster there where you're, you're standing in line to go on the roller coaster for the first time. And, you know, you're hearing people screaming and, and this thing's racing around and you're excited. You're glad you're there finally. You're, you got the courage up to get in line. Um, and then you get in the thing and it takes off and you're screaming your head off and it's a thrill. It's exciting. Uh, it's a little scary. And then when you get back the, at the end of the ride, you get off and you immediately go to your parents and say, can I get back in line again and do that? <laughs> That's what launch was like for me. It was uh, just thrilling. Now on the other side of that coin though, is you're so focused on, on what you're supposed to be paying attention to uh, as you're going up uphill that uh, that that helps uh, temper the the thrill of the moment because you're, you're always just watching the gauges and things but well right at liftoff there's nothing to compare to that may 7th to may 16th 1992 sts 49 your maiden flight and it was also the maiden voyage of the space shuttle endeavor talk about those few days well that was an interesting flight first of all i'd, I'd love that uh, we our, our crew got a chance to fly on a brand new space shuttle I, I think it smelled a bit like a new car, and it was so bright and shiny because it hadn't suffered reentry uh, when we flew it. And uh, Endeavour just flew marvelously. She was uh, just about flawless on her first flight, which was a good thing for us because uh, one of our missions on that flight was to rescue a satellite uh, that was uh, stuck in low Earth orbit, and we carried up a rocket motor in the cargo bay uh, to attach to it so it could be uh, boosted to its uh, geosynchronous orbit where it could provide uh, television and radio communications between Europe and America. And we had quite a bit of difficulty. We had trained for almost a year and a half, uh, had to invent the engineers at the Johnson Space Center, and the contractors had to invent new equipment because the satellite had never been designed to be touched by human hands once it was launched or let alone handled and, and attached to a new rocket motor. So after a year and a half of training, we thought we had a pretty good plan. Of all Everything worked in the simulator, and when we got up there, it didn't work. And after uh, two attempts, uh, we uh, were just about out of gas and ideas when uh, the crew got together and came up with a whole new approach in 24 hours on how we could perhaps uh, solve the problem. And the ground worked very closely with us and perfected the idea we had. And on our third attempt, we were able to accomplish the mission. So it was, you know, kind of hard in your throat stuff the whole time. It wasn't dangerous, but uh, mission failure is, is one thing that none of us uh, wanted. And so it was it was a exciting first mission, to say the least. And I noticed that in one of your previous interviews, you interviewed uh, uh, astronaut Kathy Thornton, and she was a crewmate. And what a great crewmate. Mm. Just terrific. So, And we've interviewed uh, Franklin Diaz Chang, who went with you into the Astronaut Hall of Fame, and uh, also Tom Jones, who says you are his hero. So uh, Tom and I were crewmates together. He's too kind. We used, 
he is another great crewmate. Tom and I flew together on STS-59. And believe it or not, I just had dinner with Franklin Chang Diaz uh, about a week ago, and another tremendous astronaut and, and uh, a great scientist. And an unbelievable story, huh? You talk about with yes. God anything is possible. Unbelievable oh, yes. story. So, okay. Absolutely. A um, couple years later, April 9th through 20th, 1994, you go back up on Endeavor, STS-59. Talk about that one. Well, and that was the flight with Tom Jones. And, and uh, I can remember after my first flight, a reporter putting a microphone in my face and saying, you know, man, this is your first flight. You're flying on these space shuttle. You have all these exciting things happen. How do you top that? And I said, I would like a flight where everything goes as planned. <laughs> so that's a little more relaxing. Well, that was STS-59. It was a near-perfect mission. Our commander, Sid Gutierrez, led us uh, on what was a, a Earth observation mission with a large radar that could take pictures of the Earth, and that was pretty new in those days. And uh, we, our job was to keep the, collect the data from the radar, make sure it was operating at the right times, keep the shuttle in the right attitude, and then take um, handheld photography out the window of the sites that the radar was taking so the scientists could uh, understand what the conditions were on the ground from an optical perspective versus the radar. And uh, that was a really fun flight. Uh, to be on and uh, to share with Tom and Sid and our other crewmates. We're talking to General Kevin Chilton, fighter pilot, test pilot, NASA astronaut, four-star general. <clears throat> it's kind of like a Bo Jackson in a way. And I'm Jack Rasula, and this is Anything is Possible on 760 WJR. Welcome back to Anything is Possible. I'm Jack Rasula, and we're with General Kevin Chilton, his nickname affectionately known as Chili. General, let's go to March 22, 1996, STS-76. Yes, that was, this was uh, my first opportunity, my, my, the only time I had the chance to command uh, a space shuttle mission. And this was aboard the Space Shuttle Atlantis. And... Um, our mission was to uh, fly up to the Russian space station near, dock with it, and one of our crewmates, Dr. Shannon Lucid, mm. who had spent uh, almost two years in Russia training for this flight, uh, spoke the language, uh, trained with the two cosmonauts who were on Mir at the time. Of course, they trained in, outside of Moscow at Star City. Our mission was to deliver Shannon to uh, the Mir space station and all the equipment she needed for her four-month stay up there. And then to bring down some experiments that uh, previous astronauts and cosmonauts had, had completed up there. And so it, it, it was a bit surrealistic for me because, um, you know, I'd spent my career uh, from 19, I guess, 72, when I went to the Air Force Academy until 91, uh, preparing to, you know, fight the Soviet Union. And here we are, you know, in 1995 going to Moscow and Star City to train in what was a very classified location in the Cold War uh, with cosmonauts. And uh, I'm studying the Russian language, um, learning about their spaceship. They come to the United States, and we host them, and they learn about the space shuttle. And, and there we go. We, we launch, we rendezvous and dock, and you know, 250 miles above the Earth, uh, open the hatch and reach across and shake hands with uh, two uh, wonderful Russian cosmonauts. And it was, a, it was a very successful mission, uh, exciting mission, and uh, again, I was blessed with a great crew. We're talking 
to General Kevin Chilton, who went up three times, totaling almost 30 days. Uh, I think you saw 16 sunrises a day. You made almost 500 revolutions from 220 miles above the Earth. What's the most amazing thing you saw? Well, gosh, it's hard to put to pick one thing out, Jack. You know, I, uh, I, I would say, on, you know, on the second flight, we were uh, our orbit was uh, inclined to 57 degrees, which meant we would uh, the, at uh, the farthest north we would get is 57 degrees north latitude as we circled the Earth, and the farthest south was 57 degrees south. So, if you can imagine, the orbit tipped relative to the equator. This circle going around the Earth tipped 57 degrees, and when we were in the very uh, in the, near the very bottom of our orbit, uh, the southern part of our orbit, um, we were in, in the dark, and we were also flying at pretty low altitude, only at 111 miles up, and uh, we had a chance to see the Aurora Australis, which is the South Pole's uh, answer to the Aurora Borealis, up uh, that folks can see from Alaska and the Northern Hemisphere. And it was just really amazing to, to be able to see this from above and almost felt like we were co-altitude with it and see this curtain of light and the various colors, greens, uh, pinks, whites, and to see it actually moving uh, as, you know, as described from the ground and from above it. You know, you could see it looked like a snake uh, and a curtain with, at the bottom of the snake moving around at the bottom. So that, that, was, uh, that was really unique. You know, the other, there's so much that's... It's, the views of the Earth are so breathtaking, the sunrises, the sunsets, the darkness of space, the blackness of space. I'll never forget that. And, of course, I'll never forget seeing my hometown, Los Angeles, the first time we flew over that and uh, had the opportunity to look down on where I grew up. Um, you guys lost a legend, the goat, Vin Scully, recently. Unbelievable man, unbelievable man. Okay. I, I was, yeah, Jack, I was so uh, fortunate to meet him on two occasions. Mm. And everything you hear about him or read about him that is complimentary is exactly right. And I don't think I've read anything that wasn't complimentary. He, he treated me, even though I was a total stranger, as if I was an old friend. Yes. Uh, just, a, just a phenomenal gentleman. Of course, I grew up listening to him on the radio uh, as a kid. All right. June 26, 2006. You earn your fourth star. You become a four-star general, the first astronaut to achieve that. When you put your head on the pillow that night... What did you think about? Oh, gosh. Uh, I, I, you know, I think anytime I take a new job, and, and with that promotion was, you know, and at that level, the promotions are associated with the position. And I was taking command of Air Force Space Command. <clears throat> and uh, I really hadn't had a lot of notice before I went out there to take command. It was a pretty quick move from my previous command. And so probably I was thinking, and I had been thinking, all right, now what? <laughs> what? What is it you're going to do? Where do you want to, what direction do you want to take this command in? And how do you want to go forward? So for me, you know, the, the promotions were nice, but at the end of the, and, and I'm grateful, certainly grateful for them, but it was all about whatever my job was in, what the mission to do, to accomplish was, that's what I was focused on. So I, I suspect um, there was the celebration, celebration. Both my parents were there, a lot of family, my mother and father-in-law, of course, uh, friends had come out for that. So it was it was just a special day. But I'm sure when I went to bed that night, I was thinking about what I was going to do the next morning when I had to get on the job. Um, you were the commander, Air Force Space Command. What does Air Force Space Command do for America? 
Well, you know, it actually no longer exists. But at the time, our job as part of the Air Force and the space part of the Air Force was to uh, organize uh, our space forces, train them, make sure all the men and women in Air Force Space Command were well-trained and prepared to do their jobs, and then advocate for and, and uh, field uh, the satellite capabilities that uh, the United States Air Force operated, which included missile warning satellites, weather satellites, uh, GPS, the GPS constellation, uh, and communication satellites that support not just the Air Force, but support all our services, Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines. Air Force Space Command went away just two years ago when they invented, uh, the Department of Defense created, I should say, a brand new service. So akin to Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, we now have the Space Force. And so the missions of Air Force Space Command were carved out of the Air Force and given to the Space Force. So they're, they're still out here in Colorado Springs. They're wearing a slightly different uniform and report to a different boss. And they're no longer called airmen. They're called guardians. But in many ways, they're doing the, uh, the same missions that uh, we were doing when I was at Air Force Base Command. When President, former President Trump said, we're going to start the Space Force, I'm sure there were a lot of Air Force veterans active that said, we don't need that. You know, you're taking the job from us. Do we need this fifth branch, really, Kevin? Well, we have it, so we better make it work. <laughs> and you know, what, but things things have really changed, Jack. And I think it's important for folks to understand. When I was in command of Air Force Space Command, uh, there was still this notion that space could uh, be a peaceful place where there would be no conflict in space, no competition in space beyond commercial. And uh, that changed in uh, 2007 when the Chinese. Uh, conducted an anti-satellite test, and they launched a missile from China and intentionally hit one of their own satellites to prove they could do that, which meant they uh, intended to, and in essence demonstrated, along with the Russians, an intent to hold all our satellites in orbit at risk. In other words, they are prepared to destroy them in time of conflict. And when I was there, because this notion was that it could still be peaceful, we weren't even allowed to talk about space as being a warfighting domain. We couldn't say space and space superiority in the same sentence. Uh, that all changed in 2007. And we now have, I would say, woken up to the fact that, unfortunately, humankind has not found a domain in which they're not willing to conduct war, warfare operations. And so once that uh, Rubicon was crossed, uh, it, 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 it argued well for the development of a separate service that could not only operate in that domain, but dominate that domain in, in times of conflict. And of course, what you'd ideally want to do is be in a position that uh, you're so uh, powerful in, in your capabilities that no one even considers uh, attacking you. And that's what we expect of the Army for the land domain, the Navy for sea, the Air Force for air, and the Marines for amphibious operations. So we demand the same of the Space Force today, and that's a new mission set that we didn't have when I was at Air Force Base Command. We're talking to General Kevin Chilton from 2008 to 2011. He was commander of the United States Strategic Command, Tall Cotton. And I'm Jack Rasula, and this is Anything is Possible on 760 WJR. Jack Rasula, host of WJR's Anything is Possible, the weekly radio visit brings his 15 years of inspirational storytelling to hardcover. With God, anything is possible. Anything is possible. 
14 of Jack's more than 750 tales of defeating odds and achieving the extraordinary. Like Bob Woodruff, whose job covering the war in Iraq nearly cost him his life. And Nick Vujicic, the limbless evangelist who has stunned millions with his message of acceptance and grace. With God, anything is possible. Order now while signed copies are still available at trustinusllc.square.site. That's trustinusllc.square.site. And as Jack says, Make it a great week because with God, anything is possible. Spohol. Anything is possible. I'm Jack Prasula. This is Anything is Possible. We're talking to Chile General Kevin Chilton, who achieved the highest rank, the first four-star general of any military astronaut. General, let's go to 2030. Paint for us a picture of space exploration in 2030. Gosh, Jack, I hope we're back on the moon with uh, Americans uh, uh, doing new and different things beyond what we did in Apollo by 2030. Uh, SLS, the, the Space Launch System, a, a large rocket that will enable our return to the moon in a, uh, in a big way. And so I'm, I'm excited uh, to see uh, that rocket fly. And uh, I think uh, after a few successful flights there, we're going to see um, Americans back on the surface of the moon. And but beyond just going there to do the exploration uh, adventures that were conducted in Apollo, I, I believe now is the time to go to the moon and actually uh, set up habitats there where people can do long duration stays on the surface and start to develop and perfect the technology that we'll need to then make the next great leap, which would hopefully happen by the end of the following decade. Uh, to send uh, Americans to Mars. Will we get to Mars someday? You know, that's a great question. I, when, uh, when I talk to audiences uh, talking about space, I always say, do you think in 300 years that there'll be people on Mars? And everybody, just about everybody in the room always says, well, yeah, 300 years. And I say, well, we better get going then. And so, uh, you know, when you put the timeline way out there, people can easily imagine that, We'd have the technology, and we'd be going to and from Mars. Um, so I, I believe we will. I believe it's within our grasp, uh, even in my lifetime. And I, I hope we uh, continue to press on and, and achieve that goal. I think we have a lot to learn. All right. We're talking to General Kevin Chilton. General, many scientists and geniuses don't believe in God. Why are you so sure there is a God? Well, um, I, I guess, you know, part of that is just the way I was raised. I was raised in a Catholic faith. But, you know, at some point in your life, uh, in your youth, typically your teenage years or your 20s, you have to come personally with that, answer that question personally for you. Uh, and at the end of the day, you know, having read um, some of the great doctors of the church and their logic for uh, describing why there must be a God, and then combining that with my life experiences— uh, and the things I've seen, the beauty I've seen, and, and uh, I, it, there's just no doubt in my mind. And, I, and, and Jack, you know, a lot of people think you can either be a scientist or a believer, and I don't, I don't think that's right. I don't think they compete with one another. I mean, uh, God invented all the science that we, we get to learn about, and we get to learn about it because he gave us the great gift of an intellect. 
Now, the other thing he gave us is a great gift of free will, which is the most amazing gift you can give to anyone, because that means they can choose not to love you or not to believe in you. And uh, that is incredible. But that intellect and free will that he has given us uh, has led me to believe firmly uh, in his existence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All right. Our mutual friend Jack Lausma gave me some facts once. A former astronaut. Mm-hmm. Um, every star is a sun with its own set of planets. Our sun is one of the smallest stars. If he gave each of the almost 8 billion people on Earth their own galaxy, we could give each one of us 15 to 20 galaxies. Um, the furthest known star is 14 billion light years away at the speed of light, 186,300 miles per second. He'd go around the Earth seven times a second. And the furthest known star is 14 billion light years away. Talk to us about the enormity of our universe. It's Well, it's totally unfathomable in my mind. I mean, we can't, it, it's hard to wrap your, your mind around those numbers that you just you know, listed there, Jack. Um, but, but getting back to, uh, uh, you know, the God and science, just, that's another tremendous gift he's given us. And uh, the, to be able to um, spend our lives trying to learn more about uh, all the things that he has, he's given us in his creation. So, uh, you know, we've, we went from looking at stars and, uh, many, many years ago as human beings and imagining uh, symbols up there. And, and now, with the help of the Hubble Space Telescope and the James Webb Telescope, we're looking, literally looking back in time and starting to understand the enormity of, uh, of this creation that is all here for us to discover. What a gift. You're one of approximately 400 astronauts. Each one is a hero. Is there one that you just think, wow, that, that's a Vin Scully right there? Well, uh, first of all, uh, I don't think any astronaut, and certainly not me, but anyone I know, feels they're heroes. Uh, and, and, and that's a, a, it's a great compliment to have you say that, Jack, but uh, we just don't feel that way. We just, uh, and I'll, I'll tell you how I feel. I, I just feel so incredibly blessed to have had the opportunity to do the things I got to do to include flying in space on the space shuttle. Um, so th- that's a gift to me, That and, and I can't look at myself as a hero for having received that gift and had that opportunity. For me, my heroes, my hero is my wife. <laughs> and I'll paint a quick picture for you, Jack. I use this often. Uh, when I was uh, uh, sitting on top of Atlantis on STS-76, sitting on top of 4 million pounds of high-explosive uh, at three in the morning, uh, getting ready to launch, I was exactly where I wanted to be. Uh, I was relaxed. I had taken a nap. Um, There's no place else I'd rather be. Uh, three miles away, standing on the roof of the launch control center, uh, is Kathy. And in her right hand, she has a six-year-old daughter. In her left hand, she has a four-year-old daughter. A good friend of ours is holding our two-year-old daughter, and Kathy's eight months pregnant. Now, as I paint that picture, I ask you, who's the hero in this picture? It's not me. Because <laughs> if we had been, if we had had to switch places, if she was in that rocket, they'd have had to carry me to the roof. Like, I couldn't have done it. So, so all right. Um, as our time winds down this evening, what advice would you give our young listeners, General? Um, you know, I, I always 
I made a mistake when I was, uh, as a parent, I made a lot of mistakes as a parent. I didn't realize I was making this mistake though, when I was raising my children until I, uh, I read a book by, um, uh, a gentleman uh, named Matthew Kelly. And he, mm. he was, he was talking about the greatest lie that, uh, parents tell their children. And he says, that lie is you can be anything you want to be. I was a bit taken aback by Matthew's point. <laughs> and he said, for example, if Mother Teresa had wanted to be an NBA basketball player, that wasn't going to happen. He says, and what I realized, and what he was really saying is, and what's important, I think, is to do some self-introspective uh, look at yourself and, and, and recognize what your God-given talents are. Every one of us is unique, and every child is unique, and every child has different strengths and weaknesses and talents. And it turns out, as I've found going through life, if I pursue um, a job, a career, a, a life that lines up with my talent, then it's not only easier, it's really fun. <laughs> and it turns out I think my talents are uh, I'm eminently trainable. So I, I think I've proven that over and over again by the different jobs I've been thrown into that I knew nothing about. And I'm a pretty good pilot. And once I've figured that out, um, life is a lot easier. So I, I would encourage young people to Take a look at what they enjoy doing, what their strengths and talents are, and then try to pursue, um, go through life looking for opportunities to use those talents. And I think you'll find that you'll be really happy. Chili, you're a lot more than a pretty good pilot. Please keep up the great, great work. Thanks, Jack. So nice to spend time with you today. And thank you for 34 years of service to our country in the Air Force. Please join us next Saturday. Until then, I'm Jack Rasula. Thanks for listening. And make it a great week because with God, anything is possible. Spawn.